Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, uh, author Thomas Dijer, though I think we're allowed to call him Tom. Um, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. You just wrote this amazing book, New York, New York, New York, which is a history of the city from kind of the last 40 years or so. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate you. Reading. Thank you for having me. It's great. Uh, and I will just to say to the audience at the outfit, I, I read the book. I love the book. As I was saying to Tom before we started the interview, I get that I am like literally the the dem exact demographic to buy this book and like it, but I really, even to the outside, I, if you're interested in New York City and New York City politics and government and finance, couldn't recommend this more. So, so Tom, you, you cover sort of five mayors, maybe four and a half to a certain extent. And, you know, I felt like you were objective on all of them and gave pros and cons on all of them. But, you know, you have views, obviously. Um, so if if you had to rank the last five mayors from Costa de Blasio, how would you do it? God, how would I rank them? I mean, you know, it's so hard. I, I really did. De Blasio was just a, an epilogue, basically. I'd been working yeah. on this book for eight years, and it really was intended to be um, from Koch through Bloomberg, which seems like a very kind of discreet period in New York City's life when we turn away, you know, from kind of the progressive liberal mindset we always think of New York, and it switches through Koch into something different through Bloomberg. So de Blasio, the end of Blo the Bloomberg at the beginning of de Blasio seemed like a kind of ending point. So I'm going to go with four. Okay. De Blasio, I think the vast number of people, we know where de Blasio would go in that ranking of five. I think let's start at the bottom then with we'll de Blasio. Yeah, given that I've now got a lot of polling that's very current in the mayor's race, you know, I, I can tell you de Blasio's numbers are abysmal. So yes, I mean it's it's um, so I mean what what they all really and objectivity is was really basic to what I wanted to do because we all have kind of gut feelings about things. We all have, I could say I had gut feelings about Rudy and the Giuliani years and, and the real serious mistakes that were made during those years. But I really wanted to be mindful of the things that, that did work, that he did bring after Dinkins years, um, a, a real sense of, of effectiveness and, and leveraging, you know, uh, what that office could do because the, the mayor's office changed after the, after the charter change in 89, where the mayor got more power the board of estimate was broken apart. I mean, we really changed city government in New York kind of in midair during those years. And so Dinkins didn't know what to do with it. Giuliani did. So on a gut level, um, I would probably put Giuliani um, uh, fourth in a certain way. Um, I, I think that the damage that he ended up doing um, or laying the groundwork for what was really devastating. How, how I mean, it's very hard to sort of separate your opinions. Yeah. If he hadn't lost his mind in the last yes. couple of years, yes. uh, do you think he would view it differently? Or because like we had for Yang, saying Daily News asked us to rank the last five mayors. Right. Uh, we had Rudy last. It's like this man is literally insane. Yeah. No, he was. He was. And when one of the sad things among the, among all the sad things about nine eleven is that for that brief shining moment. Here was this guy who really was um, empathetic and a leader and all the things that you thought he maybe could have been. I mean, we forget that before he was mayor, in the midst of the, the, the kind of the sleaze and excess of the late 80s and the market going crazy for the first time, Rudy really was a white hat kind of guy. He, he went after Wall Street. Yeah. You know, he went after the mob. He went after these entrenched 
uh, establishment, you know, ripoffs that were just part of New York. And he went after them and laid groundwork for really changing the city in that way. So, but once he got into office, um, by the end of the first year, he started to really betray a lot of that promise. And by the second term, as he goes after the idea of, of civility, um, he overturns, I think, a lot of the real positive things that had happened during Koch to help turn public space into shared space. How do we live together um, and create a, a, a way of living in New York that isn't just about surviving through it? Um, and he turned it into a way of controlling New Yorkers. And I think that was a real terrible mistake that he made. And it was based on kind of gut level um, reaction against multiculturalism and losing power. So, and, and, right, and, and also just could have been better. Yeah, agreed. And also just look, Rudy, from my experience, when he had a mission, um, could be very focused and could be effective, right? right? So you could agree or disagree with the tactics he used to deal with crime, but he came in, crime was high. By the time he left, right. crime was low. And then 9-11, same thing. Like I remember uh, I was working for Chuck at the time. On September 12th, there was a meeting, Rudy, Pataki, Hillary, Chuck, the you know people that all been around for mayor, everything else, to basically figure out what we do. And you know, everyone other than the president of the United States was basically in that room. It was at the police academy on 20th Street between second and third. And I was amazed that, that Rudy just ran that meeting. And like mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer and people who are not deferential ever to anyone, just everyone accepted that he was the boss and just did what took notes and did whatever he told him to do. Right. So he had moments for sure. Um, but in, in a way, when when he didn't have that crisis right in front of him. It was almost inevitable that his personality would just self-destruct. Right. I mean, it's painful when you compare that 8 a.m. meeting that he had every day, you know, or allegedly had every day, to a mayor who's driving around and being taken in his escalator, whatever, to his gym in Park Slope. I mean, it's, it's at, a, at, a, at eleven, right? He's so fast asleep. Yeah. Damning comparison, fundamentally. I mean, Koch was at the office every morning at six. Like there were people who. Yeah punched in every day and got the job done. So no, Mike was at the desk every day at seven. I, 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 I would try to beat him there. Yeah. Right. I mean, the last word on Rudy is that he did come into um, a lot of things that were already trending up. You know, the mayor who bore the brunt of it all was Dinkins, who gets peak AIDS, peak crack, peak crime. And it's during those years when crime actually does begin to go down. And it's his law that he passes in the wake of a, of a terrible tragedy with the Watkins family. But, you know, he begins that movement towards it. Times Square begins. That whole change begins under Dinkins, not under Rudy, as much as Rudy ever claimed it. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, I compare him to, you know, Joe Torre, who it gets the Yankees when basically the teams have been pretty much put together by Showalter, does a good job running it, but th things were ready to happen and explode. And Giuliani really did move into uh, something that was ready to happen. Um, and I would say even in terms of crime, a lot of, for all the reasons um, we could talk about with policing, there were a whole bunch of social and cultural reasons why the city, why crime was ready to drop as well. And the housing initiative being, I think, a very big part of that. So this is a, a, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but so the past 20 years for Rudy have been kind of a disaster, right? And not what anyone would have predicted because he was America's mayor and the hero of 9-11. He got knighted by Queen England, all of this stuff. Um, is it almost inevitable that because 
the job of mayor is so big and so high profile and requires so much, and yet is not a stepping stone to anything, right? No New York City mayors, even ever been, at least since the city consolidated the different boroughs, right. uh, senator or governor, let alone president, though they all run for president. If, if is it almost inevitable that the personality you need to have to win and do that job um, combined with the fact that that once you're done with it, nothing else will ever measure up, mean that kind of everyone has a, a rough post-mayoralty career. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it you know, it's hard to say that Koch had a rough post-mayoralty career because he just sort of stayed being himself, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he just, he went out and got his pastrami and lived in the neighborhood and did his reviews and, and was a kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes uh, voice and advisor to people he was around, but, you know, in a way, there's a bizarre comparison, but he was almost Carter-esque. He kind of lived in the place, lived the life he wanted to have, and never aspired after he got crushed as governor. I think he learned his lesson that he was a very specific taste and was not going to get any further than that. So, I mean, and, and certainly um, Bloomberg, um, if a lot of the, his goals have always been very, very high. He's had great brilliance and great resources. And it's a question of almost what he wanted to do. Um, he doesn't have to, someone with that many resources and abilities doesn't have to have a bad time of it. You know, no. he's also done great things. So, you know, I could pick some goals for myself that are completely unreasonable and say I had a bad time because I didn't achieve them. I mean, I think he's done some really important things as well. So, um, Giuliani showed himself the issue wasn't 9-11 it was the year before that when he was just basically crazy um, and and his on-air you know statement of his divorce that he was going to have I mean he just did all kinds of terrible things so the anomaly was that three months around 9-11 I mean he was we all wanted him to be gone yeah all right so Ru Rudy's fourth who I'm, I'm going to put I'm going to put Dinkins third just because um, he he and, and for the practical reason that he did have people around him were able to, in many places, take advantage of the change and lead the city into some hinge moments. So um, I think on crime and, and that crime bill that went through um, Times Square, there, there, these were moments where the change took place. And I do also um, have to give him credit for caring, which is not a given, sadly. You know, I mean, I think people talk about it. Um, I'm going to make no, is, is, I, I, I think tried very hard to be objective, but my own personal political leanings are, are going to be more progressive, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I admire the fact that he really did care about those issues. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that paralyzed him and, and that kind of hampered, I think I've heard from many places, decision-making abilities, because sometimes, Decisions have to be made that maybe don't take that into account or that don't put that as the top priority. Um, so I, I like a mayor who actually thinks about those things. So I think that that is um, crucial. I mean, you know, I'm not going to wimp out and say tied for first between Koch and Bloomberg, um, you know, um, but they both took on the city at times of, of incredible crisis. I think they both um brought together a circle of people around them who were um who they were not afraid of whose expertise they solicited and trusted yeah. and let them go to do the job that we needed to have done i think they created a um 
a unity of sorts in the city. I mean, to degree, I mean, a cotch less so. And if I think some of the the negatives that I would pull for each of them have to do with the level of, of the divisiveness and racial inequities that were caused or allowed to happen under each of them. So, um, you know, it, it's, I would say in that sense, Bloomberg would probably, it, this is a tough one, but I, I mean, I might have to put him on top just in the fact that he did come in at the beginning. Um, I think his sins were in many cases sins of omission. Um, I think Koch, in terms of issues of race, was a much more divisive mayor um, and vocally so, whereas I think the problems that we had with Bloomberg in the end were maybe letting people that his ability or desire to let people do their job and not get in their face, let some people go way too far who maybe needed to be reined in. Yeah. So let's let's of the two, let's let's start with Koch. So agreed that his first term was was really successful, right? Because New York City was on the, the precipice of, of ruin and he was one of the people that helped bring it back. Yeah, and, and it took a while. It took him a little while to get I mean the first couple the first year was certainly no great success. I mean the city was in no better shape. Um, you know, it was still on the precipice. It still needed more money. And from all accounts, City Hall was still pretty disorganized. And it's really when Nat Leventhal comes in to, I think, bring a, a sense of, of efficiency and the sense that government can run. You needed a, a higher level of accountability. And I think he helped make some of that happen. And I think Koch got on board with that very much. But Koch is biggest ad in the in the time is that emotional, that sense of everybody pulling up their socks and, and making it happen. Um, and so after that, you know, he, he reaps the benefits of, of the stock market um, and of the greater economy, you know, between inflation and changes in interest rates and stuff, the city's able to handle that debt load that it had a lot better. And he also tech is begins to play a major role. I mean, I thought one of the things that was interesting to me in looking at Koch uh, and the city getting out of the fiscal crisis was that they were one of the reasons that the banks kicked them out of credit was that they couldn't, nobody could account for anything in the budget. It was basically you poured money in and that was it. So one of the requirements to get back into the bond market was that the city had to produce an auditable budget. They had to develop a, a technological ability to see where the money was going. And they actually ended up ahead of everybody else in being able to do that. So it's really late 70s, early 80s when the city becomes a leader in, in technology um, and being able to understand itself and understand data and use data to direct itself. So, and Koch is a, a leader that way. I mean, the line between Koch and Bloomberg is direct. Many of the people who work with Koch work with Bloomberg. So Nat ran, as you wrote, Nat ran our transition. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's you know, and we'll talk about this this coming election. You know, I think we'll, we're going to try to copy that again. Uh, so, so, okay, so that's Koch's sort of, and then where does it start to go wrong with Koch? Like what year? Oh, you know, it's a, um, and it's also a question of what goes wrong, you know, I mean, when the money starts rolling in from Wall Street, what in the city, you know, is, is no longer, um, you know, producing balanced budgets and it's no longer bleeding red and stuff. He begins to hire city workers back. You know, now I think the image is that he, you know, willy nilly, everybody gets hired back in. 
a very high percentage of them are policemen and teachers. I mean, it's kind of concentrated in a few line items that I think most people would agree were necessary. But, um, you know, hiring goes up, the budget starts to go up, and what he, there isn't a sense of, okay, you know, there's not a sense that this may happen again. It was, the money's here again, we can spend it. And that was a real mistake on a, on a fiscal level. I would say from day one, um, the, the mistake that Koch makes is bringing some of his racial baggage to the table. He's never, ever able to create um, a good relationship with people of color in New York. And one of the things that's also jarring in the early Koch years is that up until that point, there were, um, out of that kind of game of New York representation of different interests, there, there were places for African-Americans that were assumed to be places for them. There were always the Board of Elections, I mean, not the Board of Elections, the Board of Estimate. Somewhere in city government, there was going to be representation. And in the Koch years, that dramatically, that disappears. You know, you have Haskell Ward, um, who is an outsider, and, and Gordon Davis, who runs Parks, who I think is a very important figure. Yeah, you. I, I, I'm, I worked, my first job out of college was at Parks. Uh, Gordon wasn't there yet at that time. But but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I loved reading all the stuff about Parks, Gordon. You know, so, but outside of that, that was, you know, the, the old power share, the idea of that was gone. And that, um, on a political level, that I think was also trickled down to a social level, really broke, um, created a, a chasm in the city that, that Koch encouraged. And that's something that went all the way through. To his credit, I think late in life, I've read many, many comments where um, he says he realizes that, you know, the Seidenham riot was wrong, that he made a lot of bad choices and I think tried to uh, apologize if he couldn't actually atone. And I think he deserves, you know, credit for realizing that. So what he did right was enormous. The housing initiative was enormous. So where does it go wrong? He should have left after two terms. That's where it goes wrong. Yeah, that well, right. It is really, look, I, I don't know about you. I was not at all surprised the other day when Biden said he plans to run for re-election. Like, nobody gives up power, right? Right. You know? I mean, and also, what's he going to say? He's been there for two months. Right. You know, well, I don't know. I might be leaving soon. I mean, you right. know. But like every, you see this all the time. Once, I mean, you know, boxers don't, don't retire until they get knocked out by someone they would have killed right. five years right. earlier. And you know, all the way down the line. And so, yeah, it's, and Koch especially seemed so addicted. I only knew him post-mayoralty when he was part of the Bloomberg world. Um, right. But he seemed so addicted to the job that in his mind, it's probably there would be no point in living if you weren't mayor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he went for four, let's keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and he even, you know, he knew better. He said later, like, I knew it, it was almost a habit. He could not, as you said, like, the king needed to be taken down. Yeah. Well, and, and look, I think we're going to see that, you know, Andrew Cuomo is going to be gone, I would argue, soon, whether it's in 60 days or 180 days, right? Um, and same thing, a guy who was planning to run for a fourth term has literally no interest in anything other than power, wielding power, I guess, right. women now. <laughs> We've learned there's an interest in this too. But, um, and it's going to really really have a, a rough, rough time because he's disgraced and then will be completely isolated from the only thing he's good at. Right. Uh, and so Koch, yes, I guess to your point then, Koch actually did kind of rebound pretty nicely given that leaving that job is hard, which then takes us into Mike because again, you know, we did the same thing, right? We actually right. changed the rules so that we could run for, for a third term. So what do you think Mike got right? 
you know, he was, at, I think in those first years, there was very much the right man for that time. Um, you know, he was technocratic. He did not care about the kind of racial politics of Giuliani. He assumed uh, he valued intelligence and expertise, which were not things that Giuliani ever did a sense he cared about. You know, the early, um, I, I, it named escapes me on the, the first police racial confrontation, but they were very upfront and forward about dealing with it and, and not doing the kinds of... John Bell? Uh, no, it was, I can't remember who it was, but it was, it, it was um, either, which, either way, he just um, expressed a new, just competence. Yeah. Competence, someone with a vision of what was going to happen next, and he brought all of that to bear with an enormous amount of, of muscle. Um, again, though, it was somebody who their first year, when you look at the polling after the first year, yeah. terrible. I mean, you were, I mean, really. We did this, 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 I did this thing kind of the- You did the handbook, right? The, the, yeah, the, the campaign promise handbook, because, but the reason I did it, this would have been like at the end of 02, was not even because I had this vision around like, how you could unite government and politics. It was like, shit, this guy's not gonna get reelected on his charm and charisma. Right. We better right. show that he is so different than everyone else, um, that it's the value proposition is there, even if it's not what you're used to. Right. Um, and Mike B. Mike, I think any other mayor would have fired me when I proposed it. Mike B. Mike, of course, loved it, and we ended up doing it all, all 12 years. Right. Um, but yeah, that first year was, I think when we, it was really rough, um, for sure. That was almost like his version of the mayor's management report, which kind of goes by the wayside under Giuliani. But that was the first kind of mandated kind of data roundup that, yeah. that you'd have to go through. And it was fascinating read. I mean, I read them all for eight years, but, yeah. um, you know, and, and you really had to account for it in a way that handbook was a, a digested, albeit very positive version of what got done. In that if time. you look at it, to our credit, um, if we didn't get it done or we screwed it up, whatever, we were, we owned all of it. Right. Um, but at the same time, once I went to every commissioner and said, I'm putting this thing out in four months, they started working, right? Right, right, right. I mean, you needed some kind of accountability for uh, on that. And so, you know, again, he was somebody who, who, as much as we say he, and I do believe he was the right person at that moment, and people sense that, his... The there was from the beginning a sense of uh, resentment of his wealth and a sense of him not being attached. The the jetting off to the house in the islands kind of stuff. I mean, it was tough politically from from day one. Yeah. In the middle part, everyone wakes up one day and says, you know, this is kind of going okay. You know, I mean, it was a couple of years. The the re the rebound was much faster than I think anyone had expected. Um, those property tax checks go back out. So there's a, you know, a, one tier of, of people in the city suddenly felt very happy and, and kind of re-included. And um, that money could have been spent on other things, but it was got buy-in from homeowners, I think. And I, I think that the better angels of the administration, of which there are many, um, were able to really get a lot of things done culturally and, and um, leverage uh, his power and his money in ways that hadn't before. Um, so there was a lot that was positive there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned before, I assume you were talking about Ray and Stop and Frisk, uh, about not curtailing managers who maybe were doing things that were problematic. It, it's, you know, when you were in that bullpen, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was this just culture of 
We want to, we have the most talented people that anyone's ever had in city government, and we are going to give you guys the opportunity to think big and take risks. I mean, Dan Dokteroff, if you think about it, his two biggest initiatives were the Olympics, which failed, and congestion pricing, which ultimately happened 15 years later, but was way ahead of its time. Two huge high-profile failures. His next job, CEO of Bloomberg LP, right? So, like, you know, you you were encouraged to do that. And, and, you know, I was talking to Mike was it yesterday or today, this morning. We were talking about Yang, and he said, do you, do you think he can govern? And I said, yeah, because if you look at the 100 best things that happened in your mayoralty, I don't know that you thought of any of them, right? <laughs> what you did was you created a culture where incredibly talented people came in and then had the opportunity right. to, do, to do big things and take risks and everything else. Um, and that yielded a lot of fruit. And I think if you were, de Blasio's governed the exact opposite way of that, right. um, especially if you have a mayor who, like Yang, and you know, I don't know, I'm going to turn to him in a minute, but who probably will be able to recruit nationally and even globally. Um, well, one has to be very, very careful about that. You know, I mean, I think there are, you know, even under Bloomberg, there were sometimes the recruitment of people who aren't from New York was a, was a major problem. And it's a kind of indication yeah. of not being connected to the city and emotionally, which matters. You know, that was what made Koch great is that he was, no one ever looked at him thought, oh, he's not from here. You know, he, he was. And somebody like a director of operations needs to be a roll up the sleeves person who's going to be there at 9 a.m. Yeah, that, that was a cheeky term three PR play. <laughs> um, but I was I was thinking, but she's from New York, Kathy Black. And I think, well, Kathy was a, a disaster, obviously. Hmm. The answer, yes, as sir. Said. But where I thought at least it was sort of okay was a sense that like, Mike was like loyal to the playbook that also got us Joel Klein, right? And like, so, you know, you're going to get some wrong or, or even sticking with stop and frisk too long. He was basically he he believed in data and the way Koch believed in emotion, and he he stuck to it sometimes too much, but you know right. there was, right. it was a rational basis for the decisions. So I, I would assume you would say the biggest failure is stop and frisk. I mean, I, I I think, I mean, yeah, I think that has to be what it comes down to. I mean, I, I because really, whenever you put the goods on the table, this one ends up being on top and trumping it, and and. The fact that it really didn't have um, the data, if you're going to live and die by data, once it went away, the data showed that it probably was not necessary as far as it needed to go. Were there times and moments when it was a necessary thing? Yes. Did it need to be carry on forever? Um, obviously not. I think 9-11, we can't forget the culture of fear that was... Um, I would say reasonable at the beginning and then maintained and sustained um, for beyond its its need, I think. Um, you know, I wasn't privy to all the meetings, but at a certain moment, the, the daily terror alert from Kaidi Tong seemed to serve other budgetary needs, you know. Do, do you, as shootings and gun crime is now up pretty significantly, Yeah. Um, I think there's a clear consensus to stop and frisk, you know, or had to end. It was ruled to be unconstitutional. To your point, the, the number of stops compared to the number of actual arrests are like infinitesimal. Um, but at the same time, it clearly kept guns off the street in a way that we're not seeing right now. Right. Um, it, have you seen kind of anywhere else, either in, either in an administration in New York or any other cities, someone come up with a way to do it that keeps guns off the streets? without running into the problems of stop and frisk? 
there were a lot of other parts of, you know, now we're turning stop and frisk into the only way of, of stopping people, you know, I mean, there were a whole other, and you're also, it kind of goes, you know, that that's again, the kind of like this, this equals this kind of looking at the problem. And when we look at crime, that's, that's grown over the last year, I think when you have people locked in, when they have, you know, when jobs are down, when their kids aren't in school, our kids aren't in school. Um, we had an unprecedented kind of social and economic disaster. And then we throw on top of this, the gasoline, a couple lit racial matches. It's not surprising. Yeah. You know, this has bent all of us. And the fact that some people have broken is, is I think, not surprising at all. Um, and we can't be surprised that gun laws easing around other parts of the country. We don't have a wall around New York State. Yeah. Yeah. So it is always going to be hard for us to keep guns out. I mean, we try to continue building a cushion around us of, of our you know neighbor states being that tough. But it's still you can't stop it, period. I mean, what was it? I saw a number, something like 50 million guns were sold in the last year. Yeah, it's an, I mean, the numbers. I mean, how, so we're supposed to like the like stopping and frisking teenage kids in Bed-Stuy is going to somehow hold back any of those guns coming in. I mean, I think we have to be, you know, do we do, you know. Oh, but some, some of it took guns off that ended up not being used because uh, of a stop, right? I mean, they're, they're, it might have been less than 1%, and I'm not trying to defend stop and frisk. I'm more just trying to think what, what is a responsible way to of keeping get guns off the street. Well, I, I, I think one way is to try to begin reducing the number of guns that exist, period. Sure. I mean, and I know that's a sure. I mean, that's that is the that is like saying the way to stop a heart attack. You know, let's work out and eat better. I mean, that is the that is the solution. Right. Have less of them around at the beginning. Right. That's a big start. So but not not really in the scope and jurisdiction. I mean, Mike was able but, but, to do it right. a little I mean, bit. There are limits of what a mayor can and can't do. And it has to we have to you know mayors can't print money. You know, cities don't have their own. They have an economy, but it exists within the larger economy. So they're always going to be subject to um, larger flows of, of national, you know, economy, social things, guns, all these things. Cities don't live in a vacuum. So you have to deal with that. Let, let me dig on that one of the things you said, because it's something that I've, I've always wondered about, which is, do you think cities even really can impact the economy? Or do you think basically cities can create a template that is clean, safe, interesting, and then that attracts economic activity. But when, like, do you think cities can actually say, okay, we're going to take these specific proactive measures to create lots of jobs? Well, I, I think that cities, I always picture this, you know, trying to come up with metaphors over while I was writing it. And I always imagined it as kind of a boat in the middle of the ocean or something. I mean, you're, the, the city's subject to larger national and now global, certainly over this period, global changes. And it's up to the city to try to manage itself best throughout that, whether the, the city can actually create, uh, uh, make something happen in the larger economy is kind of another tier question. And New York is unique in that way, because it is subject um, to the larger economy, but it also creates it in a certain way. Yeah. You know, when we yeah. talk about Wall Street, when you talk about these things, and they're not necessarily the, the same thing. So there's a lot of people, you know, in the Bronx who aren't necessarily being affected by what's happening on Wall Street, except through the larger way that what happens in the broad economy comes back home in that way. So, I mean, I think you try to do what's best for a city. I think growth is always necessary. One of the lessons of 
the book to me is that you can't ever say growth isn't important because you don't know what's going to happen. You yep. know, you have to keep running. Otherwise, you're going to be knocked backwards because you don't know what's going to happen next. So it has to be a kind of generative thing. It has to be a growth that really is inclusive and really makes an effort to spread the wealth and not just have it be a number that you get to wave around. But you do have to keep trying to grow your economy just to stay where you are. Yeah. So let's fast forward to today. Um, as, as you know, there's a mayoral primary in 83 days. Um, my firm happens to be running the Andrew Yanks campaign. Um, what, 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 right now we're winning. Let's, election we're today, we, we'd win the primary. Let's assume we're lucky enough to hang on and win. We're going to be entering office with a different crisis than Katra might face, but I would argue a pretty significant one in that even without mass defections to other states, just simply by changes in work policy after a year of, mm -hmm. of quarantine, you may have the, the office space population decline by 30% which just the ripple effect around the budget can be pretty devastating. Right. So given that, should we win, we're coming in with a pretty significant challenge. Uh, arguably, you could argue it's even maybe harder than the other two in the sense that this, the aha moment that, that allowed employers to realize that they don't have to be in New York or anywhere for that, that matter only happened because of COVID, right? And that was the one thing keeping New York kind of strong was that it was the white right. capital of the US. Um, so given that and given all the thinking you've done around this book, what should the next mayor, whether it's Yang or, or someone else, what should they go in thinking about? I think they need to go in thinking about tearing up the playbook to a certain degree. I mean, I think looking at real estate in terms of what's going to make developers most happy. I mean, we need buy-in and cooperation from real estate developers, but I think we also need to look at some ways for what next generations, how they want to live in cities. Yeah. You know, and I would say that when I look back at through Koch and through Bloomberg, I mean, all of these mayors, in some way, housing played a really important role in solidifying um, the city. And it wasn't just about whether businesses want to be there. It was about whether people wanted to live there, to work and do these other things. And that created the talent pool for those businesses to be there. Right. So we can't ask corporations to be in charge of everything. You know, people like New York, they came here in droves. We added the entire population of Philadelphia over those 40 years. Like they, people want to live in New York. So, but that was also very much a generation, largely my generation that came in under Koch as, you know, urban pioneers. And then the housing initiative is one of the ways of opening up the doors to um, bring in immigrants who found ways of owning homes and living in um, you know, in rem buildings that were turned over, that a huge amount of the housing stock was opened up and, and brought back to life. And with that came neighborhoods. And that was a generational move. So I really have some, you know, crazy fantasy of being able to look at um, housing in a way that is honestly inclusive and that isn't about coming up with some formula 2010, which all the creativity that happens then is about how to try to get around and game the right, system. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, the original Battery Park City was supposed to be a mixed income development. You know, it was a validly mixed income, mixed use thing where people of different races and different income levels were going to live together. And that sounds Pollyanna, except it was also developed by the Rockefellers, which is sort of amusing. You know, I mean, it. So we we've had major developments when you look around the city, Penn South. Yeah. Um, Stytown. These are places 
huge developments that were possible that were not geared purely to, you know, please um, big real estate money. So I think we need to know that that's possible. And I think the real market going in the future is going to be looking at what younger people want. I have two kids who are in their 20s and they don't necessarily want to live in the same path that I did, but they want to live in New York. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's a, David Rockefeller used to talk about catalytic business, which I think was just always taken to be, you know, another massive development, another new, the MSG move that we're starting to everybody like wake up and say, oh my God, that's going to happen. Um, you know, but we need some even bigger ideas that aren't necessarily about just throwing up big buildings. They can be new kinds of buildings for the next generation. Right. Um, one, Hugo's yelling me to, start to wrap it up, but I want to ask one more question, which is sort of a non sequitur, but you're from Chicago. You wrote a great book about Chicago. Um, I spent four years in Illinois as the, the deputy governor, so really got a good sense of Chicago politics, Illinois politics. And in my experience, they're fundamentally very different from New York. And I was curious, like my take on it, both when I got after I had enough time, I got back to kind of process it again, was in some ways, because there's so much happening in New York City, we we're at least for now or what, or a year ago, the center of so many different industries. You know, the mayor's important and government's important, but it's not the only game in town, right? right. It's one right. of a lot of things. And, you know, I think de Blasio in some ways proved that because he has not been a central figure in the city in the, right. in the last eight years. In Chicago, the mayor's like, even though it's a really successful city, the mayor's everything. I mean, I, Daly was the mayor when I was there. And, you know, the way he wielded power, the way they, they handled services, the, I mean, the corruption almost made sense given all of that, you know? Like, how do you distinguish between sort of the two, the two cultures around government and politics? I, well, I mean, it's such a, the, the machine never really died in certain fundamental ways. I was raised with that as a kid. You know, the guy would come, you need a garbage can, you know, primaries next week. I mean, it was, it was just a done deal in that way. Yeah. But it also created such a remarkable amount of cynicism about politics, which still exists there, I think. I was always, I was very surprised moving here, even in 1980, you know, this was not a happy time. People really believed then, and I think still do believe now in New York City, in politics. I think they believe and expect something from the people they elect. I think they have much more vested. You know, I talk about my city councilman. My daughter works for a city councilman. I mean, we we see them on the street and, you know, we like them and, and have things to say to them and believe that they can do something. No one, I don't know anybody in Chicago who has ever had a good thing to say about their alderman. It's like a form of entertainment. That's not true. If they got you, if they got you a patronage, no show patronage job, then you like them. Yeah, okay, right, exactly. Like then yeah. you got a deal and my brother and your uncle and da da da, you know, I mean, right. but it's like that. And so it, it is one of the things that I think honestly does hold the city back is I don't, as f people don't believe that they can change the politics there. And and I and I really wish that um, they could believe that more. But it, it, it's I don't know how you do that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. I mean, the, the mentality, generally speaking, yeah, it doesn't lend itself to like tremendous amounts of innovation and creativity in the way that because because to a certain extent, even the people in Chicago who really, really, really think that way, a lot of them like you moved to New York, right? So it's. <laughs> You know, listen, there's a, a crazy number of talented people down there, you know, in, in, you know, very committed and, and the talent pool is 
still immense when you have, you know, your University of Chicago, Northwestern, um, but it, and it gets deployed very unequally. I mean, the South Side is another world. Yeah, for sure. I, and there's definitely, so like when I was there, to me, like, what's the point of working in government unless you're going to try to do things that are really new and interesting, right? Right. And so I would always, we're the first state to tear down every toll booth on the tollway or do universal health care for kids. And we did a lot of them over the objections of the political class, but the, but the answer I always got back was like, well, who else has done this? And I would say, nobody, that's why it's so great. And they'd be like, let us know after like 10 or 11 have done it and talk to us then. You know, and I think I ruffled a lot of feathers for that reason, but um, but it just was a different mentality. Right, I mean, they're proud of being, you know, the city's proud of, of innovating in almost every other field, but in politics, it doesn't want to kind of take yep. the leap in, in, and that's that's a shame. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, Tom, I, I know we're way over on time, so thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, really, rec and if, if you listen to this podcast, you will like this book. Uh, so hi highly recommend it, and, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Take care.